Welcome to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. In this series, we will explore the technological advancements that are shaping alternative proteins. From cultured meats to plant-based proteins, we will talk to experts and innovators who are working towards a more sustainable, efficient, and kind protein production system. Join us as we dive into the exciting possibilities and challenges of the alternative protein production industry in the years to come. Hello and welcome to this January-February 2023 edition of Protein Production Technology International. And we're joined um, today by Nicoletta Pasacinic um, from Penn & Tech. Um, they're a regulations uh, consultancy, a spe specialist in the field of regulations surrounding plant-based um, proteins, um, cell ag, and all other types of uh, alternative proteins in the space. Uh, and she is the Senior Regulatory Affairs Manager at Panentech. Um, Nicoletta, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, today we're going to be talking about uh, Panentech's um, expertise in this field. Obviously, it's a very challenging area. One of the things we hear constantly about challenges in alternative proteins is regulations and probably not so much plant-based but certainly in the field of um, cultivated meats uh, and to a lesser extent I guess fermentation derived proteins. Um, so Nicoletta, Nicoletta before we start um, could you just tell me um, over the years that you've worked with Penn and Tech um, how you've seen this space um, evolve in your time working in the sector? Um, yes yeah, so I've been working in the novel food space for over five years now and um, interest in making way to market for novel food proteins has been steadily increasing over time. And um, it is because of different variables. Um, actually, recently I, I read that um, Synthesis Capital has estimated there's about 2,000 companies working in, in this uh, sector. Right. And um, I think most of these companies are driven by um, consumer demand for more sustainable, ethical, um, also healthier protein solutions. And also we cannot ignore the fact that we are at our doors with a very global problem, which is food shortage. And this, of course, it's, it's an ongoing problem because of COVID and because of war and resource depletion. So um, definitely, at least in the last three years, we've had increasing requests from companies trying to understand the legal status of these uh, more innovative proteins. Their main questions are, how can they bring it to market? Uh, what type of data package is involved? And um, I would say the, the, most, uh, the most quoted proteins are, are those coming from microbial fermentation, um, insect proteins has definitely had its, uh, its years, um, for the last two years, cell cultured, um, proteins have, have been quite, uh, popular and, um, 2022 personally, I would say it was marked by a lot of interest in microproteins. So there's quite a lot of variability and interest coming from the industry. Mm -hmm. And, um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and you obviously your focus is um, global, so it's not, I mean, you're, I know that you're based in um, Europe, but you're mm. focusing on the regulations all around the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yes, not only in Europe, but uh, I think worldwide we've seen this ripple in, in, in providing a collaboration between um, the industry, the government, the academia, 
Um, and I think Singapore is, is, is a great example. We saw how the government is financially investing in all these startups. Uh, we also saw how the Singapore Food Agency has been releasing and updating um, uh, novel food guidelines with very specific, specific focus on cell-cultured products. And um, I, I think this collaboration has definitely helped with what we currently consider a success, which is the first approval of cell-cultured chicken in Singapore. And how exciting is for for those consumers in Singapore to already be able to um, have a taste of, of, of that cell-cultured chicken and the food hawkers. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, not just Singapore, of course, uh, U.S. has, has been... Um, on our radar, so in 2022, we have seen how um, they have culminated their efforts when the U.S. FDA has first, uh, well, before, F, uh, well, after U.S. FDA has first released its uh, guidance in 2019 into how they're going to regulate cell culture products. So sure. um, in 2022, November, we, we saw how the FDA completed its first pre-market consultation assessment for cultured chicken and well although this does not mean that the product is approved and it's ready to be sold there's still uh, a step that needs to be done by the usda and fsis mm-hmm. uh, it, it does mean that uh, a huge milestone was was proven and that the fda agrees with the safety assessment provided by the company so they agree that the product is safe so this is a really big advancement uh, for for all the, the industry. Yeah, and, I, know yeah. I know that news was welcomed by um, um, companies in cultivated meat around the world. They they all celebrated it, didn't they? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's um, it's something that everyone is looking forward to um, because in comparison with Singapore, the novel food dossier is is not made publicly available. But uh, on the U.S. side, there's high expectations that, well, we already have actually, we already have access, public has access to the type of information that the applicant, which in this case is Upside Foods, uh, has provided to the FDA. And so this bit of information, this extra bit of information, it's a, it's a huge advantage for all the other companies that uh, want to follow and uh, achieve this um, safety assessment tick from yeah. yeah yeah well as you say it's 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 not uh, it's not a green light to get it onto our plates but it's an important first step and as far as I'm aware I think that was the second um, application um, to FDA so it uh, remains to be seen who who that first application was I think it was CCC 00001 or something um, we don't know who that is yet but um yeah, no, it's a it's a huge boost and uh, exciting times ahead for uh, for alternative proteins and cultivated meat, especially. I mean, um, if we can come back to Penn and Tech, what services um, do you offer? Because your your title, senior regulatory affairs manager. Um, some companies, depending on their size, obviously they would have someone in house um, dedicated to that uh, that position. I, I know one of our columnists, for instance, Hannah Lester. She is. Uh, um, as well as being an independent consultant, she is also uh, working for Gourmet. Um, so you would, there's a lot of our readers who are in that sort of startup category that wouldn't have um, your expertise in-house. So 
Can you just talk me through some of the services um, that you can provide those companies? And I guess that's all the way from research and development right up to approval. Yeah, that's right. So as a regulatory consultancy, we do support companies from the R&D stage up to approval. I would say our most in-demand services are um, regulatory roadmaps and dossier work. So by a regulatory roadmap, is, I'm, what I mean is um, where we outline the regulatory process, we perform a data audit. So this is where we list all the information required, all the studies required for the dossier. We provide information on how long it will take and how much it will cost for these studies to be undergone. We also provide information on solutions and possible issues related to regulatory hurdles that the applicant might uh, might expect to get from specifically to their product. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of dossier work, we, we can perform various roles. So we can be um, something like a study coordinator. So we, uh, we can contract external studies on behalf of the company. We can be the ones who help put together the protocol, review the protocol, be the ones who monitor the progress of the studies. And of course, we can uh, review the results and then prepare a, a, a draft, a final draft to be included in, in the dossier. Um, and this is something that we really encourage companies uh, to keep in mind because study design is um, is quite an important uh, is quite an important piece that needs to be paid attention to, especially for European uh, European dossiers. Mm-hmm. Um, we can be involved in the drafting of the dossier sections. So um, this would include also compiling all the annexes and references, and even submitting the application online. We can be the contact person for the dossier. And uh, which which means that we can take over all the communications with the authorities. So, for example, if the dossier is submitted and it goes through the risk assessment process and the authorities come back with questions, we can take care of that. Yeah. Of course, uh, some startups, uh, they are not even sure whether their product even needs a registration. So at that point, before we do a regulatory plan, we can um, look into and confirm what's the legal status of the product. So if we specifically talk about proteins, we would assess whether it agrees with the definition of a novel food or whether in the EU it might agree with the definition of a traditional food, which actually has shorter timelines to market. And um, yeah, it's a bit more advantageous to go down that route. And we also can provide support uh, at this stage by contacting the member states in the EU and trying to get that official confirmation whether the product in- indeed is novel and if indeed it needs a registration. Mm-hmm. Sometimes um, sometimes we have companies that just need a bit of more reassurance into the type of studies they need to perform. And so um, we can also be involved in helping them um, contact the authorities in the US or in Singapore in, in the EU and arrange pre-submission consultations 
Um, so we can be of support there too. And um, I mean, there's also companies that, well, th these are not, these are not that often that happens, but there are companies who have already submitted dossiers and uh, they are receiving many questions from the authorities and uh, they might need that extra support. So we can get involved and we can put a strategy forward based on the type of questions that the authority is asking. Um, and then we can provide solutions on, on the questions that these authorities have for these companies. So you're right, really our main role is to be an extension of the regulatory team and um, to really help provide strategies and, and solutions that would bring the product faster to market. Yeah, I mean, that time element is very important. I know that Upside Foods um, application took 13 months, I think, um, to get that um, to get that letter from FDA. Um, and presumably, if you haven't got all of the information right, uh, and there are queries coming back to you, that just adds to the um, adds to the development time, doesn't it? Just adds to the time yes. to market. So, yes. um, it makes total sense to have uh, an expert preparing that documentation for you. I guess it's a bit like you know trademark law, and you know applying for patents. You know, you have a, an IP attorney who will do that for you because they know how to present that information to the trademarks yeah. office in the um, specific way. Yeah, um, I can see you, um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Nicoletta, could you possibly give me some examples um, mm -hmm. of how you've helped a, a company in this particular space? Right. Um, although I can't name a specific company because we are we are bound by a confidentiality sure. agreement. But I'll, I'll 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 try to give you some some examples. So mm -hmm. so when startups were just beginning to wonder how does the regulatory framework for specifically culture meet? How how did that look like two or three years ago? Mm, there was no guidelines or specific data like we have now from Singapore or from the U.S. telling these companies what type of information they're looking at. Companies didn't even know that uh, they could access the authorities by having regular meetings with them and trying to find out directly from them what type of information is required. So there was a lot of chaos and non-understanding. So two or three years ago, uh, when we did get a lot of these new inquiries, I would say we were, we were among the first regulatory consultancy um, to send to set a standard on what would be considered a complete novel food dossier for cultured cell meat. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we provided regulatory roadmaps that um, helped the industry not only prioritize which jurisdiction they should be looking at or approaching first, but also it gave them an understanding on the many different gaps missing in the regulations and in the guidances that did not cover specifically this complex foods which are cultured meat mm -hmm. for example many of these products had culture media ingredients that were not food grade uh, as you know growth factors is an example some of the cell lines that were used were sourced from non-approved carcasses of animals or Different processing aids such as additives or enzymes were used in the manufacture, although they were not authorized for that specific use, which was in the production of alternative meat proteins. So there were a lot of 
questions. Um, so we were able as a consultancy to um, zoom in this, this type of question that the authorities would have to the applicants. So we believe that uh, we have helped help to shape the understanding of the industry on what uh, gaps to pay attention to. And so um, this have this has led to the initiation of the industry to to um, to have a conversation more directly with the authorities. Um, and I think because of this open communication that we have seen with the US and with Singapore is is why we have seen more advancement in those jurisdictions in terms of guidances and of course the authorizations that um, that have already happened. Mm -hmm. I guess as the um, regulatory landscape becomes a little bit clearer um, as you proceed with more and more um, applications, um, uh, it, it becomes a little bit easier for you to fill in those gaps, as it were. Mm -hmm. It becomes simpler for you to help these companies through that process. I mean, it sounds like an enormously challenging um, area. I mean, what are some of those challenges, Nicoletta, from your side of the fence as a as a consultant mm -hmm. um, on regulations in this space? Uh, there are certainly quite a few challenges that I could think of. Um, I'll try to, uh, yeah, I'll try to think of two at least. So. One one of the challenge that is quite pertinent um, is for first for our work with startups is how do we remain part of the discussion? So by that I mean how can we as consultants can be an active participant in our clients' journey to bring their products to market? And this is because most companies in let's say in the um, cell cultured space when they do approach us. They approach us in their pilot or testing phase. So this is where they still need to fine-tune some of the ingredients and even look at how can they optimize the manufacturing process. So at this stage, we can intervene, we can provide a regulatory plan, we can detail the type of data that they need and the strategy forward. But after delivering this regulatory plan, there seems to be something missing so whilst we would still be like we would still like to be part of the conversation with our client the reality is that most companies disappear for a year or two there can be multiple reasons you know there they might be trying to get more investment they might uh, already feel like okay we have all the information that we need now we're gonna we, we can just start the studies so we, as consultants, we lose touch with these developments. And so the other major problem that we have is that during this time that our clients disappear and we're not in touch, some of the regulation and guidances, they, they can change, of course, they, they can get updated. So this means that the advice that we have provided in the past might not be the most relevant. So. Um, it's quite a tricky situation, um, and um, if if this happens and guidances do get updated, um, it might also mean that studies might need to be repeated. So it's not a it's not news that we want to give to our clients. So therefore, we do encourage companies to still keep in touch with us, mm -hmm. even though just to touch bases uh, from from now and then. 
especially for those startups that don't have a regulatory team in their house. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be really helpful because the last thing we want is um, for them to come back with finalized studies and for us to give the the news that actually the guidances have been updated. There has been some um, changes in the study design and therefore you need to repeat this study. And if we're talking about those exp- expensive long-term study, this is a huge investment for the company. So for something like this, the outcome is quite disappointing for, for the client. So you can save time and budget if we uh, if we are involved uh, all along, because we can predict and we can plan ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, remaining part of that discussion, it's uh, it's vital, isn't it? That collaboration as well. I mean, you're essentially a part of the team, a part of the uh, startups team, aren't you? So. Um, how difficult is it, um, Nicoletta, when there are different rules and regulations in different countries? There are different products. I mean, you, you talked about insect-derived proteins at the start, um, cell ag, um, you know, microbial fermentation. I mean, all of these different products have all got their own different rules and procedures and in different countries. I mean, that, that must be enormously challenging for you as, a, as, a, as an organization. It's challenging until a point where we have a good understanding of the regulatory framework and the data requirements and how every authority in every country um, deals with with these products. I think it's more of a challenge for the actual um, company uh, if they want to achieve global regulatory approval. Because it might mean that although initially they had a priority to penetrate, for example, the EU market, they might need to change their priorities if one market is acknowledged to be easier to be accessed. Mm-hmm. So this is one difficulty that I see. Then, of course, there is rising cost to market. The more markets you want to access, there there might be some specific data for one jurisdiction that they would need to take into account. Of course, they need to accept that timelines to market will differ between jurisdictions, uh-huh. even though the dossiers and applications have been submitted at the same time. And um, I think what is the most painful for companies, if we if we think of that, if we take that a bit more in detail, is if they want to go for a global approval. Sometimes the authorization conditions between one market to the other can differ. Not just the authorization condition, even the labeling conditions can can change. So let's say, for example, the EU. The EU might decide that um, the, they want to limit the specifications of the product, or they might decide that they want to limit the intended use, or um, they might suggest to the applicant For us, in order to authorize your product, we expect that you would update the manufacturing process either to remove or to add a specific step. These are all very plausible uh, scenarios. This is quite painful for companies because, of course, they do want to achieve authorization in the EU. But if they accept all these conditions, that will mean that the product that they will be able to sell in the EU would be restricted only to the EU. 
Um, so for example, they won't be able to import if the product is already sold in the U.S. and the initial ad initial idea was to manufacture the product in the U.S. and just import it into the EU. This will be quite difficult. There's different conditions. So um, the company might need to think of a new production line just for the EU space. So I think this is uh, this is this is one for sure that is hard to even predict, right? And um, there is one more thing that I would like to mention here. So the challenge of achieving a, a, a global regulatory approval also lies in detailing very carefully and planning very carefully the studies that need to be done. So of course. The requirements will overlap between jurisdictions, but it's really important to understand what are your market priorities from the very beginning. And specifically, I would suggest or have in mind to have EU uh, at, at all times in mind. So even if EU might not be the priority of, for the company in the next two to three years, um, the EU authorities are known to be very picky in study design. So although if a study is EU compliant with, with uh, EU guidances and can be used for other countries, vice versa might not be the case. Right. So, so the tip here, it would be to avoid planning studies that are just compliant with one jurisdiction. If you already know that within five years time, you wanna market, you wanna achieve market access to three different jurisdictions, the tip would be to plan the studies and look into the study design that would be compliant with all the countries, but especially uh, with the country that has the most strictest guidances. So if you make sure that the study is compliant with the guidances with the strictest requirements, you can rest assured that it will be accepted in all other jurisdictions. I mean, the last thing that any company would want to do is during the dossier evaluation, they would find out that there's a specific parameter that this specific jurisdiction wants to have in this study. And therefore, and this has happened in the EU previously with, with various applications, not just on the food side, also on the feed side where the European Food Safety Authority has rejected a study and has asked the applicant to redo a study because they were missing some parameters. So uh, study design and planning for, for studies is very crucial um, thing for, for applicants to have in mind, um, especially because there can be different rules and, and guidances between jurisdictions. So, so if they seek approval first in Europe, um, it might it make it easier to open the doors in other countries such as Singapore or the USA because it is so demanding and strict. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Yeah. That's right. what, what about other countries, um, Nicoletta? I mean, we always talk about uh, Singapore and the US and Europe. I mean, there's a lot of other countries out there. I know Australia is looking, uh, it has its own um, cultivated meat um, sector. Uh, there's countries in the Middle East, obviously, um, who are looking at this and other countries in Asia, China, Korea, I guess, mm -hmm. probably all looking at these novel food um, sources. Um, are you able to assist there? Um, yes, although we don't have physical offices in those countries, 
we are able to provide support through our collaborate collaborators that are local in those countries. Of course, in English-speaking countries, it's a bit easier because we can speak the language. So uh, the guidances are, are in English, for example, Australia or New Zealand, Canada, another example. But um, in countries like, um, in countries from Asia, for example, we, we know from our collaborators that the culture that we have established with the regulatory authorities in Europe or the US, for example, is not the same as in Asia. For example, in Asia, governments and authorities, they really prefer the one-on-one -on -one type of discussion rather than sending an email. They will prefer having a call. So there is a specific etiquette also to go about when, when you have some questions to the authority. So we think that yes, we can help companies in those in those regions, but definitely we do rely on the local expertise of our collaborate collaborators when it comes to this more maybe tricky questions to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to come on to um, your advice for startups now. So let's, let's imagine that I'm a startup in this space. Um, what resources are there available for me um, when it comes to seeking approvals for my product? Mm -hmm. Um, I guess it differs depending on the product itself, but um, have you got any advice there? Right. So for startups, I'm thinking this is some someone who, again, they don't have an in-house regulatory affairs person and uh, they're someone who need to really get their head around what's the process. So I would definitely suggest for, for Europe, for example, um, to check the European Commission's website uh, because there they can look at the flow chart of how the novel food process looks like. They can understand how do the how authorizations um, are published, how they look like, uh, how to submit an application. So, so all that information that's available on the European Commission's website, and it is the most trustworthy uh, resource to start with. Uh, after they have that clear. And they know that they need to put together a dossier for an our food approval. Then the next resource to uh, look at would be the EFSA website. On the EFSA website, you can find all the guidances, all the administrative and all the the scientific guidances. And these are key documents to consult as you plan for your studies that would be included in the novel food dossier. Mm -hmm. Also on the EFSA website, you can check already published opinions for previously evaluated novel foods. And what this does is it gives the, the applicant a really good understanding on how does uh, the scientific risk assessment look like, what type of questions EFSA can ask. So this would be another critical resource. Of course, if um, startups are stuck they 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 can they can enter into a dialogue with EFSA so either they can ask for general pre-submission advice with EFSA where they can ask questions such as the type of information for this section uh, and how to what what type of studies they would need to do it will be quite general though so if if, if you have a bit more of a specific scientific or technical question, you can also go ahead and, and contact EFSA through the EFSA portal, which is a which is actually a different resource specifically for asking asking questions. 
Mm-hmm. EFSA also from time to time organizes webinars and info sessions um, on novel food applications. So those are super, super useful because they're live and applicants can ask questions directly and they can also learn from, from other applicants on their questions. They're actually also available online. So I think on YouTube, you can find all of the recordings of these webinars. So I think they're, they're quite a, a good resource to look at. Um, and of course, uh, if, if you still feel stuck and you have so many questions, we are here. So, so don't, um, don't disregard the option to, to get help from regulatory consultancy because we, we are here to help you get the information as, as quick and as fast as possible. So, um, definitely ask a regulatory expert in the U S of course, and in, in Singapore, mm, I think the best advantage that these jurisdictions have compared to the EU is the possibility of engaging with these authorities, pre-submission, having meetings with them to ask more specifically on the uh, types of studies to be included in the dossiers. So uh, I would say never skip the possibility of having a consultation Uh uh, with these authorities because it can be these. Uh, meetings and the information that you get from these meetings that it's so valuable that it can dictate the success of your dossier. Yeah, I guess a lot of these guys, are, you know, they're researchers, they're biotechnologists. Um, some of them would be entrepreneurs, I would imagine, but um, it's such an important area that you have to get in place um, before you try and bring your product to market. I mean, what are the considerations um, in your eyes for those startups preparing uh, yeah. products for the alternative protein space. Yeah, so um, if they have it really clear in terms of the legal status, what what regulatory pathway they, they need to go through. So uh, here we're talking about whether it's a novel food or a traditional food. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be important for them to um, compile a regulatory roadmap from, from the very beginning. Yeah. So here is where they have to um, agree on the markets that they want to get access to, um, to understand what's the regulatory route for each market and to plan ahead on the data required for for each of these markets. Mm -hmm. I mean, the regulatory roadmap is a tool that is essential for any company to have if uh, the product requires a pre-market registration. So I would say do not skip this this important step. It gives you a really good indication of mm, not only the, the data that you need to undergo, but also how, lo- how much it can cost, how long it will take to get this data. And so it can give you a really good understanding of the next year or the next two years, how, how that will look like for your company what studies need to be run, what sort of investments they need to be looking from from the investors uh, to be able to pay for the for those studies. And also, I would say um, the regulatory roadmap is not just is not just that. It also can help companies to uh, put forward more strategic options. So um, I would I, I would say, Look at what advantages one jurisdiction has over the other. Can can they achieve data protection for 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 their product? 
What about confidentiality? Does the dossier get published online? Mm -hmm. um, what about time to market? Which market is easier to access mm -hmm. and uh, with, with less budget? So I would say look at all these um, look at all these um, in, in, in separation for, for all jurisdictions and then decide which jurisdictions you want to access first because that will be quite crucial uh, in, in order to understand the, the type of knowledge uh, or intelligence that you can get out of this sort of first market access. And so um, I would say another important important thing to, to take into consideration is that if if as a startup you're really tight for money, um, it's a good thing to uh, think about collaboration, collaborating with other startups. Mm -hmm. If it, so, for example, look for partnership opportunities with companies that have very similar products, or perhaps they have a very similar manufacturing process. See if it's feasible for both of you to split the costs for the studies that need to be run. Um, because this could mean faster regulatory approval for for both of you. Yeah, yeah. that's a really good point about collaboration. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, some would say there's not enough of it at the moment in the alternative protein sector, but uh, yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah, um, Nicoletta, could we discuss um, the recently submitted novel food application for plant proteins? I mean, what are some of the insights uh, from EFSA opinions on plant proteins? Yeah, I mean, there's um, quite a few insights to 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 um, discuss on. I think it was quite um, interesting to see, at least from from last year's mung bean protein isolate application, that the applicant relied only on um, literature to sustain and prove safety for the product. So by that I mean they didn't use any. Uh, toxicity studies. So the usual, the usual data that is included for the toxicity part would be genotoxicity studies and, and a ninety-day subchronic toxicity study. And these usually are the most expensive type of studies to be included in the dossier. And a lot of companies include them because they're quite crucial to prove the safety of the product. So it was quite um, eye-opening to see that. Uh, companies can go ahead and just support uh, the safety of the product by showing that there is a history of consumption for this uh, plant protein um, by relying on the, on the literature. And uh, we have seen that this same approach was also taken by other applicants. So, for example, the um, PN rice, um, rice protein that was fermented with shiitake mycelium, they have also used the same approach not providing toxicity study. And we have seen that EPSA does accept this approach and they do conclude positively on the safety of the product. So this is quite a huge takeaway because if um, any startup can provide good evidence that mm, the, pro the source and the product is safe based on uh, history of use from the literature, then this possibly means that they could um, avoid to under, undergo and, and run this more expensive studies. Mm -hmm. And this also means faster timelines to market, of course. Yeah. Um, I think another thing that we have seen with these uh, applications is the that companies sometimes get confused with what EFSA wants in terms of data requirements. 
So we have seen a lot of companies providing information on the stability of the novel food and um, they, I don't know if they forgot or they just didn't pay attention to provide uh, stability studies on the novel food as used in different matrices. So for example, if you intend to include your plant protein in a milkshake, then EFSA expects you to provide evidence that the plant protein is stable in the milkshake. So um, this type of information we've seen applicants just avoid providing it in EFSA again and again and again, asks applicants during the evaluation to provide this, this evidence. And this is one of those situations where um, you want to predict and plan because stability studies can be um, long-term. Uh, although, yes, accelerated stability text testing, it can be provided as part of a dossier and EPSA will accept the, the results, but those results will be more uh, supportive rather than um, conclusive. So long-term um, long shelf life studies are still, are still required. <laughs> There's, of course, other, other things to, to take insight from these applications, specifically for plant proteins. Um, EFSA is very keen on understanding what about the substances of concern that can come out of the source. So in this case, anti-nutritional factors would be a substance of concern or any environmental toxins. Mm -hmm. So EFSA would, uh, would um, EFSA encourages applicants to take these into consideration uh, because from the literature, sometimes you can understand that they can be of, of concern. So they would, applicants would need to analyze, for, first ident identify and then analyze these sort of substances of concern in the final product. This is uh, related directly to the safety of the product. So uh, it's important that this type of testing is done. Yeah, definitely. Um, we're going to come on to some fun questions now, Nicoletta. I mean, you probably get to see a lot of different products um, with the companies that you're working with, a lot of different solutions um, among those startups. I mean, which ones excite you most uh, and why? Yeah, uh, I, I don't think I'll, I'll be able to, to list all of them. There's definitely so many. And every year that uh, I get to go to these conferences where even new products are presented, uh, you, you just can't help but uh, be excited for the future. Mm -hmm. So I'll mention the first one that got me really, uh, really excited. Um, it was Solene Protein by Solar Foods. So mm -hmm. about three years ago, that was that was when I first heard about it. And for me, it was uh, such a novel product, not just the product, but the way how it's manufactured. It really seemed like a food made for ast astronauts. I thought if, if there are people who can make protein out of just thin air and electricity and, and water, um, then I'm really excited for what else can these humans uh, create in future. I, mm -hmm. still, I still think about this uh, type of protein um, until this day because yeah, when I first heard about it, it was like a fairy tale. So it's really nice to still be up to date with sort of the progress that's, that Solar Foods is, is doing. <laughs> then I'd say the the next most exciting product for me um, was a bit more um, hands-on approach. So 
I got to see for myself in 2022 how um, a 3D ribeye steak was printed in, in, in front of me. So this was during the Future Food Tech in London in September 2022. It was a really eye-opening experience. I... I got an iPad and I got to choose on the iPad how fatty I wanted the, the meat to be. Uh-huh. I also was able to choose the, the type of cut, uh, so the shape of the cut. Um, and it was really striking just to see how it works. Uh, you, you were seeing how the machine was layering um, muscles and, 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 and fat. And in just about five minutes, you got that piece of, piece of meat, which was... Uh, it was really realistic. It resembled a real cut of meat, in my opinion. So, I mean, it was a prototype, of course. Uh, I was able to, to taste it, unfortunately. And the company behind it was um, a stake, Stakeholder Foods. Yeah. Uh, I really liked the sort of the idea that they had behind with this product, which was... Um, which was personalized nutrition. So mm-hmm. the idea would be to to make products uh, so that to to adjust the nutritional profile of meat, so that uh, as you can imagine, it can address some of the big health impacts that we're getting from overconsumption of fat um, in these days. So uh, for me, those products are really disruptive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think they really help us understand the the different possibilities there are in future for for this type of products. Um, I'm still very excited to understand what yet has not been revealed to the public. And um, I would say, as a regulatory, uh, as someone who works in in regulatory, I definitely feel quite privileged and and lucky. Uh, I sometimes feel that I get like a front seat on the right. Uh, to to really get to know this more innovative innovative products yeah I, I went to an exhibition in um i think it was at the start of december in london and and got to taste a lot of products i think it was uh redefined meats beef um that was just there yeah, I, I couldn't tell the difference it was so tasty <laughs> but yeah just i mean things like plant-based tuna and salmon and it's it's just unreal and as you say Yes, yes. And as you say, the technology is going to improve all the time. The the taste is going to improve the texture, the I guess Mm -hmm. the the aesthetics and the cookability of the products and and as you mentioned before, the nutritional um, aspect. If we can actually engineer these products to be more nutritional. Um There's a lot uh, of potential. Yeah. Um and we touched on this earlier, Nicoletta. Um in such a fast paced industry, I mean you these products improve if not year on year, but certainly that they're improving all of the time. Um, how can regulations keep up? Because by the time the regulations have caught up and they've been through their process, the technology has moved on once again. There's a possibility that you know it may never catch up. It must be such an enormous conundrum for the industry, for 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 people like you. I mean, we were just. I guess we just accept the fact that um, sign. Science is moving way faster than um, we can see updates in the regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's always a point with innovative technologies and, and new products that uh, there are more questions than answers. 
So yes, this is where regulations and guidances uh, come short. They're not inclusive of this more novel, um, novel products. Well, a great example is, is cultured um, cell meat, right? So in, in this case, we are really in a position to make decisions based more on assumptions. I mean, these assumptions, yes, they have to be scientifically plausible. They're not just, uh, you know, um, made up, but they have to be scientifically pl pl plausible and we have to look through the eyes of the authority. So what would the risk assessor want to know more about this product? Although there is no guidance and there is no regulation, we have to think as if we're them. And um, with this more innovative technologies, the priority always is safety. Um, so when something is new, um, it's most likely that not even the scientific officers will know much about the product. So it really is up to the industry and the companies to provide as much information as possible. And because this is where the opportunity meets innovation, right? So products like cultured meat, there was very little information existent on the data requirements the companies needed to include in, in the um, in the dossiers. They are a really good example of how complex products can be. So uh, what really worked well was the effort that we have seen on trying to collaborate. So the cell ag industry collaborating with government and with academia um, just working together to try to educate the authorities and not just locally but worldwide to educate the authorities about the product identity how it's manufactured what's the intended use and uh, sort of make the story of why this product is safe so I think what has worked really well, um, it's sort of this collective input of scientific judgment that has helped the regulators in the US and in Singapore um, to sort of think about, okay, we need to put forward guidance specific for the Okay, I lost you a little bit there. Can you still hear me? I can. Can you hear me? Yeah, no, I can hear you. I just um, lost you a little second there. So, um, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Um, now, <clears throat> if we'd have done this interview three months ago, Nicoletta, um, it would have been a very different conversation. Um, obviously, we, we mentioned it before we had that, um, I think it was on November 16th, the, um, the uh, no concerns letter um, from the FDA to Upside Foods. So it looks like the USA is going to be next after Singapore um, mm -hmm. in, in that well, I won't call it a race, but in in that um, getting Celag or um, cultured meat products to market, um, how do you think um, this will pan out now? Do you think the battleground is going to be in the USA? There's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of investment. I know Believer Meats has just set up a um, a big facility in um, I think it's Carolina. Um, do you? Where do you think the real battleground is going to be now for cultured meat? I. I think in various places. I mean, we 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 see quite a lot of um, quite a lot of advancements in Singapore, and I don't think that's going to to stop anytime soon. So we're gonna going to see increased interest in in Singapore. 
Um, USA is definitely on the agenda for many of these companies and uh, for Upside Foods to uh, get their approval from a USDA and FSIS. So, of course, they, they still need to inspect the manufacturing plan and certify that it's um, it's it's uh, able for its use. They need to think about the labeling and to approve how they're going to call these products. They need to still think about how they're going to formulate this product. So there's still work to be done in the USA, but um, all, in, all in all, I think it's highly likely that all this work will happen in 2023. Uh-huh. I'm going to be sales in 2023 so i think some companies are still sort of sort of holding on to see what will happen how fast will this be but certainly there's already um uh active active applications going on in in the u.s so uh usa is is not far behind at all and i also think israel is is quite a big player um I think we're we're going to hear quite soon from from Israel too. There's quite a lot of investment and really active companies with with just great um, alternative protein ideas, and it's great that the government is is really supporting um, these products. Is there anything that the EU can learn from um, what's been happening in the US and, and 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 Singapore and you know to Israel? What might be happening there? Do you think they're lagging behind the EU, or is that not the case? Uh, yeah, Europe is such a specific, <laughs> such a specific region, and uh, I mean, yes, we 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 can be hopeful that um, things uh, can change in Europe, but the reality is that nothing will change. I think the current regulations that they are, so the novel food regulation, is not going to change anytime soon. The guidances that we currently have in Europe, um, they're quite detailed already. Um, so, yes, if you compare Europe with the progress in US and Singapore, you can definitely conclude that uh, we're lagging behind, but we have to look at it from different angles. Uh-huh. Um, so, for example, if the same product that was already authorized in in Singapore, if it if it already if the first authorization would have happened in Europe, so if the European Food Safety Authority would have concluded yes, it's safe, then it's very likely that Noah that the company wouldn't need to even submit other application uh, in in other jurisdictions. So it's very likely that they could have used that. FSA positive opinion and present it to regulatory authorities in Singapore, Israel, a lot of other jurisdictions that they really look up to the Europe. They they really trust in the safety assessment of that happens in Europe. And so they wouldn't even require a separate application. So this this tells us a lot. Mm-hmm. It tells us that um Europe is, is quite a big power. Um, it's also a bit unfair to 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 compare currently because there are no active applications ongoing, at least for cell culture products. There is no application that has been submitted in, in Europe. 
So we can't really compare in terms of, of timelines um, Europe with Singapore or, or the US. <laughs> There's such a big market as well and so many so many companies in that field are based in Europe, aren't they? So, you know, the Netherlands, yeah, yeah. Germany, France. I think what, what we're, we're seeing is that the, the strategy, and, and for good reason, the strategy that most companies have is to try to uh, access other markets where communication with the authority is more open, where applicants don't feel like they're shouldering all this weight of providing the right evidence themselves, and they really appreciate this uh, back and forth uh, communication that they can have with the authorities to establish exactly sort of where does the investment need to go, what studies to provide, what questions the authorities have even before submitting anything. Um, this currently is not possible in, in the EU. Yes, you can have a pre-submission consultation with European Food Safety Authority, but it's very general. It's nothing at all what, like what happens in, in Singapore or the US. So the strategy that these companies have is to really leverage on the information that they can get out of this uh, authorities to leverage on the experience that they're currently having and then to use all this information in order to complete, if you like, the, the European dossier. For sure, Europe is, is, is on the mind of many of these companies, but I feel like they're trying to get as much information um, possible before they submit the, the dossier to, to Europe. So I would say from my opinion, EU is not really lagging behind. It's just it hasn't had yet the opp opportunity to receive applications and and um, yeah and evaluate them. I think uh, the industry is sort of uh, really shaping and and um, they want to first uh, get. Okay, can you still hear me? Am, am I cutting off again? It's all right. It just cuts off for a second, Nicoletta. I think I, uh, I think I heard, I think I heard you properly there. I think we should probably um, conclude in a moment because uh, I think I'm running out of money on the meter to keep the internet going. It's either your end or my end, uh, probably my end. Oh, um, it's all right. It's a, um, now alternative proteins. They're, they're a climate solution. We we know that the production of food, um, we know the rearing of livestock, in particular. Um, contributes greatly to um, greenhouse um, gas emissions. Um, did you hear that? Mm, sorry, no, if you could just repeat it again, please. Sorry, Nicoletta. Um, alternative proteins, I mean, they are a climate solution. We know that uh, the production of food, um, livestock in particular, contributes greatly to uh, global greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. Um, now, given that Given the promise of alternative proteins, do you think that regulations are holding back a potentially um, significant solution for reversing climate change? It's hmm. a good question. I think we need to to consider that the aim of of having regulations is to protect consumers and to ensure that the food that is put on, on the market is safe. So 
yes, innovative products have to be part of the discussion and, and they should they should have um, access to market, but the regulations are there in order to protect the consumers. So mm, it could be seen as as holding back mm, the, the sector and, and holding back innovation. Um, but I feel like if you would ask anyone what do they place more, or the consumers, what do they place more interest on, safety will be really up there. So in many geographies, we have to also think that regulations are not really up to date. Uh, we were talking about how the regulations cannot keep up sometimes with, with science. Um, and so it, it does take more time for the authorities to incorporate these advancements. It, it can be a positive or it can be a positive a positive thing. So wherever there is a gap in in regulations, the the industry can take the opportunity and sort of dictate how how they they see the space evolve. But of course it's it's not it's not easy. Um not easy. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably all we had, all we have time for, Nicoletta. Um, that's uh, that was a fascinating discussion, um, just over an hour long. Um, so, thank you very much for your time, um, and uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. Well, I really had a pleasure talking with you, and uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Excellent. Thank you for listening to the Future of Protein Production podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and knowledge about the innovative technologies and practices that are transforming the way we produce protein. Don't forget to subscribe to Protein Production Technology International, our multimedia magazine, and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the latest news and updates. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes.